Thank you, Shoko and Wanda. That's a, a song, a prayer put to music, is it not? Have I no way? Will God have his way in our hearts this morning? <clears throat> As we avail ourselves to his holy word. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. It's, uh, we have the promise of a beautiful day. It's supposed to be in the high 60s today. So that, thank the Lord for that, the God of all weather. Well, please join me in the book of Nehemiah. We are in chapter 10 this morning. As we continue to examine what it means to walk in covenant with God. You'll recall that Israel, in Israel's history, during the days of Nehemiah, she is undergoing what you would call a reformation. That is that uh, Israel is conforming their life to the will of God and to the word of God. The reason that they're doing this is because they have been disciplined by God for not conforming their lives to God's word. <clears throat> so they're choosing to do this. Their way, their life away from God took them to the bottom of the barrel, as it often does for, for those of us that stray. And so they are willing now to change. They want God's blessings. They want God's favor. They want to live out their lives for the glory of God. And so they are lining up their decisions and their choices the way they do life with the way God has already written in his word. After 70 years of captivity, as promised through the prophets, the Lord brought his people, the remnant, back to the promised land. They were exiled because of their disobedience. As I think about just kind of rehearsing that part of this book, I thought, what a grand display. And Kevin really prayed about that this morning, really the sovereignty of God. What a grand display of the sovereignty of God that he made a promise to his people that I'm going to send you away as chastisement for your idolatry and other disobedience. But in 70 years, you're going to come back. I'm going to bring you back to this promised land. And you think, well, how can God know that that's going to happen? How does he know that people will even want to come back? That there will be anybody that's still interested in the land other than the fact that his sovereign decree, he decrees it and it comes to pass because the Lord is sovereign. And he works in hearts, in the hearts of man, so that his purpose is fulfilled. So what a grand display of God's sovereignty just in the fact that the remnant is back in the land. They built the wall and now they are getting their lives Together spiritually, they're building their lives spiritually. The whole book, in, in essence, is about rebuilding a life of worship. And that's what we have watched unfold. And we have this generation, this remnant, back in the promised land. They've been there about 140 years now. A lot of time has passed. Slowly making progress. And this is a generation of people that have decided to take responsibility for their own lives. You know, their forefathers sinned. And that's why they were exiled in the first place. And they could choose to blame their situation on their forefathers. Or they could just sit around and feel sorry for themselves and say, you know, I just hope that my circumstances change someday. But they don't do that. They take personal responsibility to seek the Lord and to obey his word. And as a result, they are receiving the blessings of God. So they are growing spiritually. Well, in this chapter, I've pointed out three categories of what it means to walk in covenant. First, we looked at verse 29, and I'm going to read the chapter for you in just a few minutes. But in verse 29, uh, they avail themselves to reading God's word and obeying what they read. That would be a good practice for us, even in our daily devo devotion. A lot of times we feel 
while I've accomplished something because I have had my devotion and I've read God's word. And sometimes we forget, oh, yeah, we need to put that into practice and apply it. But that's what they're doing. They're reading it and applying God's word. And then in verse 30, we saw another way that they were walking in covenant with God was by promising uh, to lead their families spiritually, specifically in the area of holy matrimony. And so the parents were covenanting with God not to give their daughters to the people of other cultures, the pagans of the land, or, the, or to receive the, the other daughters into the house. So not to give their daughters and sons. And we found that, that faith, when it comes to holy matrimony, is on the spiritual level, is very important when it, in God's design for marriage. And so the parents made the promise to God for their children. We're going to ideally raise them with a proper uh, description of God's design for marriage so that our children know what is a wise choice. So they're, they're willing to step up and to be proactive in cha- training their children, to try to withhold them from the wrong and to encourage them in the right, in conforming this area to the obedience of God's word. I wish I would have thought of it. Last week we talked a lot about that. And we talked about the importance of the father's role in helping their children navigate these waters of choosing a mate and uh, the important role that he plays in protecting, especially with his daughters, um, with potential suitors, because as a father, we've been there. We know what it's like to be a teenage guy. We know how they think. And so we can probably do a great job in protecting our daughters from that. What I didn't say, I wish I did, but the Lord brought to my attention through an email this week. Somebody else said, you know, not everybody this day and age has a a father in their life uh, to be there to to provide and to protect, maybe to offer that kind of guidance and wisdom. And just a reminder that sometimes that's where the church can stand in the gap and that there I'm sure there are many people here that would be willing to play that role so that it is still lived out, that that wisdom from God and that protection from God, that covering can still be had uh, through the church. So if you're in that position, don't feel hopeless. Pray to the Lord. I'm sure there are many people that would be willing to play that role here in this very body. So these Israelites are covenanting with God and promising certain areas of their lives to be turned over to the Lord. And the third point to Complete this chapter 10 in the book of Nehemiah has to do with walking according to uh, worship as a great priority in life. And that's where we'll camp this morning in particularly two uh, categories. They're going to reform their ways in practicing the Sabbath and then also just simply making uh, worship a priority pertaining to the household of God. So let me go ahead and read these chapters. I think I'll this chapter. I think I'll just start with verse 31 because we've covered up to 30 and read the 39. And again, this is what they're saying to God, the covenant they're making to God, the obligations. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves 
the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, and the priest. The son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not... Neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. We see first the Sabbath here in verse 31. The peoples of the land bring in the goods. Or if the peoples of the land bring in the goods and the grain and so forth on the Sabbath day to sell it. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day, any festival Day, any celebratory day, <clears throat> and we'll forego the, forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. You might recall in one of the last sermons on Proverbs about wise parenting, I encouraged us as parents to make sure that we memorize the Ten Commandments so that we have them ready in instructing our children and giving them the moral reason why they do things. Certain things are permissible and certain things aren't. <clears throat> now, what commandment are they keeping here, what commandment is this? What number? Fourth. All right, good. And the fourth says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Were they keeping the Sabbath holy? Not really. When we get to verse 13, you're going to read some disheartening news about their idea of the Sabbath. But they are trying. They are making commitments to do this. Now, just as the surrounding people had no regard for God's design for marriage, what it means to make matrimony holy or sacred, what it means for the spiritual element of faith to be involved in it. We discussed last week how, in essence, God is saying when he talks about believers only marrying believers, that it's not just important that he loves you or that you love them, but it's important that they love God. That you love me and that's God's design. The surrounding nations had no regard for this idea of marriage, nor did they have any regard for this idea of a certain day of the week that should be set aside 
for rest and for the worship of Yahweh. They didn't practice it. They didn't appreciate it. They perhaps didn't even know about it. So, like many people today in our culture, they see it as just another day. It's another day to catch up on things. It's another day to prosper, to put more money in the bank. Another day to get to get great deals, if there are any great deals out there. Uh, it's another day for me to serve myself. And so they would bring their goods into the city of Jerusalem and expose the Israelites to these great deals, these things that they had to sell in the market. And that day, I guess they would bring their carts, maybe driven by donkeys or they would wheel them in by hand or just have baskets full of bread and food and materials and clothing and the other kind of goods that they would sell in that day. And so it was a great temptation for the Israelites when the, the peddlers come in with their goods to buy these things. And they did not resist the temptation. I mean, especially when they're selling two large pieces for the price of one. I mean, surely you gotta, you got to take advantage of these kind of deals. Or the fried catfish combo on sale on this particular day. So we need that. We've got to take care of our families. We've got to eat anyway. And let's buy a few of those blankets so we can put down and have a picnic lunch as well. So there, there, it was just an every day to prosper. Every day to, to, um, to get ahead, perhaps. Now, I have to say, if you think about the context of the times that the people of God lived in that day. You know, when you look at it, we've studied it. If anybody had an excuse not to rest and worship on this day, I would think it would be the remnant. Because after all, they have they've been relocated and they're kind of starting from scratch. The promised land isn't so promising right now. I mean, they're having to rework their fields, get the rocks back out of them. They're having to rebuild their homes. You will recall that when all of this was going on, this rebuilding drought would hit. They were not immune to bad weather. So sometimes they couldn't even grow food. They were having a hard time feeding their families. And on top of all that, they had the surrounding nations and culture, people groups that were not at all friendly to them. They didn't want them to to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That was competition. And so they were often under attack. Their very lives were threatened. And then on top of all that, they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So they're they're exhausted. They're weary. They're financially exhausted. They're they're, they're trying to build their homes, plant their gardens, take care of the families, build the wall, and protect themselves from being killed by their enemy and fight the weather. And then on top of all that, they had heavy, heavy taxation because that's what happens when you get taken over by a foreign king. And the foreign king's going to use your money to uh, promote his own agenda and plan. So if, if you look at it from that kind of perspective, you know, they were a people in great need and uh, they could use a great deal if one passed away. They had to eat. They had to provide. And the goods were available to them. So it's, if, if they, anybody had an excuse, I think, perhaps it would be these people. And it was almost like maybe this day of not doing anything, of not buying anything, is kind of holding them back from the progress that they need to make in rebuilding their lives. It almost appears that perhaps it's holding them back. But 
That's not how the Sabbath works. We know that from reading God's word. God's law is always good and it's always for the good of his people. And the Sabbath is not given so that his people will miss out on great deals or miss out on opportunities to prosper. God knows in the big picture of things that we need rest and we need worship. And so it is a matter of perspective and it's a matter of priority. He knows what it's these kind of things that can actually cause us to go astray and wind up in exile like the Israelite people did. Sometimes maybe resting on that day or not doing business on that day, uh, we may miss a two for one deal. But in the big picture, we are gaining, coming out way ahead by walking in obedience to what God knows is best, even beyond ourselves. Now, we studied the Sabbath in greater detail when we went through another communion series on the Ten Commandments. So I'm not going to camp here very long. But what they're doing is they're coming to the realization that life is about obedience to God because God's word is good and we're going to trust it. And he says this is what we need to do. And we need to actually prioritize our time and value our days and even our money according to the value that God puts on it. And so they're, they're pledging, they're, they are obligating themselves to practice the Sabbath, to not fall into the temptation of these Goods that are being offered and to fail to rest and to fail to worship. And it it included the seventh day Sabbath for the land and then also the exaction of debts. So they're closing down their family businesses. They're gathering as family. They're corporately gathering to worship the Lord. And they're basically saying, God, I trust you. I trust you with my time. I trust you with my money. I'm putting my money on God. You know, to practice the Sabbath, to close the doors down when you could possibly increase your your financial status to say, I'm really I'm putting my money on God. I'm putting my time in God's hand and I'm going to choose to put the proper value on this day. According to how God defines it. So that's really what it comes down to. It's trusting. And, of course, we know the Sabbath was not given to rule over us. It wasn't given to hold us back. It was given to help us to thrive in this life. What do we need more but to do what we were created to do? And that is to worship God. And that involves rest. Now, today, Jesus is the object of our Sabbath worship. And we don't just worship on a... It's not just about the day. It's about Sabbathing in Jesus. He's our rest. And he says, come all, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. And he fulfilled all of the Old Testament stipulations of the Sabbath. Now, today we practice the Sabbath on a Sunday. The early church did that very quickly because Sunday was Resurrection Day. And they thought, what better day to worship the, God, the Lord of our Sabbath, Jesus Christ, and on Resurrection Day. But it still remained an important day to take a break from the other days of the week. You know, if we don't make this a priority in our lives to rest and to worship, what happens is, in essence, God 
does not remain a priority in our lives. And it has this trickle-down effect, and it just kind of permeates. And we begin to lose perspective and value on time, money, energy, and what we're going to do with our lives. And then, of course, when we walk in disharmony with the way that the universe is created and the way that God wants us to live, it's going to bite us. It's going to sting us. It's going to hurt us. It's, it's, it's crying out, don't do that. You can't do that. It's not the way life works. Come into this is where the rest is. The rest is in obedience to God. It's in a life that worships God. You know, just like in Nehemiah's day, uh, we're surrounded pretty much by people who don't really see, uh, don't believe in a Sabbath. It's just another day to get ahead. It's another day to make money. It's another day to make good deals. It's another day to serve self. And so the worship of God is not practiced. So another another day for us just to, to, to get a grip on things. You think about the Sabbath and what God has done here. What do we call, by the way, um, our work week? A lot of times we say TGIF, as if work is such a burden. So we're thanking God that it's Friday, meaning whew, here's a break for the weekend. But another thing that we call our work week is, I've heard it referred to as the daily grind. You know, here I'm, I'm off to the daily grind. And, and it's this picture of, I guess what we're communicating is that, you know, work kind of grinds on us, doesn't it? It has this tendency, it, w- w- if you're aggressive, you're grinding down your job. You're, you're grinding down that day and you're putting forth a lot of energy to stay in control and to master, to take dominion as God would have us. But also, work is grinding us down as well. It's taking its toll on us. And it's a way of God to offer us freedom from the bondage of things. One of the part of the curse was the toil and the sweat of our brow. That's a daily grind. God says, yeah, it'll produce. You'll be able to provide. But it's going to cost you. And here's a, one day a week where God gives us this beautiful gift of rest an opportunity yes you have to work and you got to work hard and you have to be good stewards but not today not this day this is the day when you can rest your body and rest your spirit and be filled with the presence of god really if you think about the sabbath is an opportunity to be delivered from those things in this life that really have a strong tendency to keep us in bondage Does not work, is not work one of the most difficult things that many people struggle with today as far as feeling in bondage to? Isn't it work that's often what's in the forefront of our minds and the anxiety? And sometimes we dread having to go to work each each morning. We dread what time we got to get up in the morning. We talked a little bit in Sunday school about whining and complaining. And when do we do that? Perhaps the most is about our jobs. Work, And it's, it's God's way of, of, of delivering us from that. It's God's way of helping us keep it in perspective so it doesn't become our God. Because work can become our God. Work can become that thing that we, that we want to serve. It just becomes way too important to us. Money's the same way. We're, we're choosing to shut down the business. We're choosing not to do the six-day-a-week stuff on this Sabbath day and trust God with our finances. What's another thing that our sinful hearts have a tendency 
to want to worship money. And it can become an idol. We think that we can't feel secure in this life unless we have that certain number that gives us security. A certain figure. And we become in bondage to these things. And they make us anxious if they're not going properly or if our bank account gets too low or if our job is threatened. And in a sense, it's God's grace of wanting to deliver us and free us from these things so that we can enjoy them, put them in their proper value. And so keep the Sabbath holy. Keep it as a gift. And it's, it's our job to, to take the responsibility to look at life and our priorities and our time and our resources and our money. Am I, is my job submitted to God? Are my funds submitted to God? Is my work an idol or is it submitted to God? Sometimes in work we set up our own standards of what it means to be successful. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to meet our own standard on that gerbil wheel. And we feel unsuccessful if we don't meet our own criteria. God wants to free us and deliver us from these things. He will take care of us. So it's no wonder that this idea of keeping the Sabbath holy also transitions into just an overall priority of worship and the place it holds in people's lives. Leading to that very powerful last verse where they you can just sense the determination. We will not neglect the household of God. We see that in verse thirty nine when he talks about we're going to bring our contribution. The grains, the oils, the wines are going into the chambers, the vessels that are needed. What are they talking about? They're talking about these things are needed for the ministry that's described in the law of Moses to take place. This is how this is the system that God set up for ministry to take place so that man and God can meet through the atoning sacrifices, through uh, free will offerings, thanksgiving offerings. It's how you connect to God. It's all done right there in the temple, in the house of God. In another series we did for, um, I think it was last year, when we examined the temple and the articles of the temple and what it meant, we learned that the, the temple is actually a shadow. It's patterned after a shadow of worship that takes place in the heavens. So this, what's happening in this temple, what they're talking about here is, is very sacred and holy. This ministry that takes place. Because the, the very vessels and the... The rituals that are taking place, the words that are spoken, every, everything is calculated in that temple. That the priests do, the Levites. And it's, this, it's a shadow of the incredible worship that takes place in the heavens, in the unseen realm. Very, very sacred thing. Very, very spiritual event. Hebrews reminds us that when we worship today, that we have heavenly witnesses. So much happens that is happening that we can't see. We can see with the eyes of faith. We have heavenly witnesses that join us in the exaltation of God. Very, very sacred and spiritual. 
A lot of what happens is in the unseen realms when it comes to worship the Lord and the transforming power of God. It's big and it's real. And we often sense its effects, but we don't always see it physically. So perhaps you can imagine in Nehemiah's day the things that are taking place and and how sacred it is. Because you walk into that temple and it just cries out, God is holy, worship Him. And even the material was designed to be royal and, and, and precious and valuable. The curtains on the walls. And you walk in there and, and you are immediately confronted. While the choir is singing, you hear voices in harmony exalting the God of gods. And then you see these priests with their very... Uh, the, the, Holy garb, their robes and all of the bells and different things and intricate designs and in the material. And, you know, it's all has a purpose. You, you would heat, you would smell your, the aroma of the burnt wood. And then, of course, the animal sacrifices that were taking place, a barbecue, if you will. And then you would hear the splashing of water as the priests would wash their hands, the pure, clean water. I mean, everything is so holy and everything is so sacred. And then even you would probably occasionally hear animals that were being slain against their will. And then you would see blood sprinkled. And, and the, the carcasses, the, something needed to be done with those. It's, it's just this, this ritual and this very holy. You, it, it might not be unusual to hear one of the worshipers maybe moaning and groaning in an attitude of repentance. Or some of them very elated in an attitude of thanksgiving and praise. So there's this incredible spiritual atmosphere that's taking place. The power of God is present in the holy of holies. And yet what we're reading here is just this this reminder, this down to earth reminder. That in order for all of this incredible, sacred, holy moment to take place. Somebody's got to chop the firewood. Somebody has to get the needle out and make the material. Somebody's got to grow the grain. Make sure that that grain is grown. Make sure that it's milled and make sure that it's that it's baked for the showbread. Somebody has to make sure that the animal carcasses and the things that aren't offered to the Lord is carried out of the temple. I mean, think about all of the work that goes on behind the scenes, the shadow behind the shadow. Just to make the spiritual moment, the ministry between man and God, even possible. Somebody's got to grow the grapes. Somebody's got to know how to ferment them into wine. Somebody's got to press that oil. Add the fragrances for the Lord's house. All of these things. Metalsmiths got to be busy. All the precious metals have to be formed and shaped and cared for in order to be used. Somebody even has to stand at the gate to open the door to make sure the right people come in and not the wrong people. Somebody even has to watch the time to make sure the sacrifices are made at the right time. 
all of these people working behind the scenes to make the sacred moment possible. Somebody's got to be there. Somebody's got to pick the songs we're going to sing on this Sabbath day. Practice them, perhaps. All of the things that go on behind the scenes. So the point is, in order for times like this, in order for that transition and often the ministry and the power of God that happens in the unseen world, in the unseen realms... The very practical down-to-earth sacrifice and service needs to take place from the people of God. There's this economy of God. There's this stewardship. And it's almost like the cycle of worship. You hear about the cycle of life. It's almost like the cycle of worship. There are things that have to take place in order for this to take place. And in God's economy, he's using all of his people at different times in different places, all the skills, all of the resources that he has invested in his people. He is using that to make ministry possible. It's his plan. He could have chosen another way to do it. He could have done it all himself. But he invites us into this beautiful economy of ministry. You see, before the animals were sacrificed and as Powerful as that atoning blood is, there were countless daily sacrifices of the people, of the servants of God. To bring what is needed into the household of God. The sacrifice before the sacrifice. So the people in Nehemiah's day had to come to grips with the condition of the household of their God. And apparently they didn't like how it was being run. They didn't like that perhaps they were short on things or or the proper clothing was not available. It just wasn't running like as described in God's word. And so they decided to do something about it. They wanted it to flourish. They wanted ministry to flourish. They wanted the glory of God to flourish. They wanted God to be known throughout all the nations. So they begin to bring and to give and make sacrifices and make promises. We're not going to neglect this. No more neglect. It's dangerous. It's wrong. It's disobedient. No more neglect. And so they covenant with those words. We will not neglect the household of God. And I think the text begs the question when you read those words can't even walk away from that that chapter without asking ourselves am i neglecting the household of god if we were to take an inventory if we were to look at the household of god the people of god that that we fellowship with the gathering local gathering of the saints what does it look like is there neglect in different areas of programs or ministries or behind the scenes things We know how much goes into even the spiritual moment that we get to have here for a few hours in the morning. The transforming power of God as the word is is gone out in the classrooms and Sunday school from the pulpit as worship takes place. There is a lot of behind the scenes service that uh, has to transpire in order for us to even have this moment. All that behind the, the, the bulletin to keep us informed takes time and money, ink and printers and so forth and office work. Somebody has to pick the songs all the time and money. Think about the personal sacrifices that went into just this week so that we can come and gather as the saints of God. 
The grounds have to be kept. The building has to be kept. Announcements have to be made. Songs have to be chosen. Um, Practice has to take place for worship so we can be ministered to. People for Sunday school have to prepare the lessons. The sound system has to be checked. Make sure all the light bulbs are going on so we can see in the household of God. I mean, there's just so many things, so many people in the economy, God, service that takes place so we can have this moment where we are fed and filled with the presence of God. It's an incredible thing. Are we neglecting the household of God? We've been in Ephesians. It's been a while since we've been in chapter 2. Um, I think John said it's going to take about 10 years to get through Ephesians this morning. So Corky can have that break. Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 3.15. If I delay, you may know how... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are the local manifestation of the church of the living God. We have been called together to see that ministry happens, to see that God is exalted. And our purpose statement is to exalt God. To edify the saints and to evangelize the lost. That's why we exist as a church. As we think about those three things, those overarching goals of the purpose of a church, do we see any neglect? Is ministry taking place as ministry should take place here? Is the time being offered to money? You know, spiritually feeding the flock, we know it takes time and money. Even to mail the monthly missions, the miss, our, our missionaries that we support, to mail those checks, it takes time and money and sacrifice. All of this is very intricate process that takes place. In order for us to even take up an offering, we have to have servants to do that. Obviously, it goes on and on and on and on. So they are coveting to make God a priority, to make worship a priority. And one of the ways that they're doing this, and this word kept coming up, is first fruits. It's interesting that in the economy of God, in order for him to properly be worshipped, in order for ministry to properly take place, first fruits of things are required. What does that communicate? It communicates priority. You know, because the thing that we worked hard for, we would be tempted to keep for ourselves because we we deserve it. We give it to God for his use. Isn't that interesting? That's just right off the bat saying, God, you've really you're behind all this anyway. You deserve it. I thought I deserved it, but you gave me this gift. I give it to you for your service. The first fruits. It's a reflection of our hearts. You know, the temple in that day, the household in that day was a reflection of the condition of their hearts. I would venture to say, to a large degree, that churches are a reflection of the hearts of the people that go to that church. It's the household of God. When God slips as a priority, you know what slips? Ministry. It's one of the first things that slips in our lives when we no longer focus on God as we should. How we serve and how we minister. And I think it's manifested in our churches today. 
the household of God. Look how many doors are closing. Not that churches were supposed to build. They're not built to be eternal. The Lord's coming back. And of course, he is the ultimate temple, Jesus Christ. But this is what we're given to make sure that the God is exalted. The saints are edified and the lost are evangelized. You know, in that day, they had pens where they would, they had to keep up the pens, fill the livestock in order for ministry to take place. So today, we have, to, we have to keep up the budget and, and manage the budget in order for things to take place. So, putting God's first in these areas, not, not seconds or thirds, but first. And what it means... If the house of God is neglected, is that ministry's not taking place the way it should. God's not being exalted in the way he deserves and should. People aren't being evangelized. The gospel's not going forth. The sacraments aren't being practiced. Could also mean the practical things, the bills aren't getting paid. Things are wearing out, they're falling apart. There needs to be that push. <clears throat> Ultimately, so in God's economy, how does this work? Well, the Lord provides for us so that we can provide. We're stewards. Everything we have, our time, our gifts, our talents, our money, our resources, everything we have is given to us by God with the expectation that we will use it for the glory of God. And that's how ministry has taken place for all these years in this earth. People that were willing to give what they had and sacrifice. To the Lord, and it continues to this very day. And so, when God gives us these things, we don't want to selfishly hold on to them, but we want to receive the gifts of God with an open hand, lest we get bitten. So, as Mark Driscoll says when it talks about stewardship, the question is not how much do I need to give God of what is mine, which is often the way we approach, say, tithing. And ministering in the church and serving. So it's, it's not how much do I need to give God of what is mine. The question is how much of what is God's should I keep. The re- result is then as stewards we can give the rest away. We know there's always a cost to ministry. There are many, many servants out there. We wouldn't have what we had today if it weren't for the sacrifices of the stewards of God. Enjoy what we have. There's always a cost of ministry. There always will be a cost of ministry. There's no way around it. And there's a responsibility that the saints of God must come to grips with. This is our day. This is our moment. This is our house. We're going to take responsibility for it. What's it look like? How far are we going to take it? What are we going to do with it? As the saints of God, making sure the bills are paid. So as a result, as as we wind down here, as a result of God's people getting back into God's word, reading it, studying it, exposing themselves to it, they see areas of their lives that are off. And and they are making a commitment to get back on. To conform to this, to obey God's holy word and to lead their families and to worship God and steward their resources and to give generously for the glory of God. And I think it's an encouragement here for us this morning as we think about 
exalting God, edifying the saints, and evangelizing the lost. Is there any area as we search your heart that perhaps there is neglect in my heart, in my family, in my group, as God speaks to us? If so, what area? And what will we do in the presence of God to make it right? Well, God has spoken to us this morning through His divine Word, and I am trusting the Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. It's a pleasure to worship with you guys, by the way. I love to come here and worship with you, the saints, and I appreciate the worship team and the songs and all the service that takes place behind the scenes. Uh, may we not be found in neglect. No matter what the rest of the world does or other churches, may we not be found in neglect. May God bless the preaching of His Word.